0: Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Today we are recording episode 65. Before I introduce my guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast, A Gift from Adversity. A Gift from Adversity came... Um, I got published... Or um, through Booklogix and in 2020, it's available on Amazon. A Gift from Adversity is my life story and the subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying and Homelessness. And after I published my book, I have a lot of people reached out to me and told me their adversities. And this year, I felt very compelled to start a podcast platform where people can solely talk about adversities, but not only that, tools that they use to overcome, and a gift that came from it. And it's been wonderful having so many guests from all over the world. Today, we have a wonderful guest from Australia. Her name is Rach Wilson. Hi, Rach. Thank you so much for coming to A Gift from Adversity.
1: Hi, Julia, It's so nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me onto the podcast.
0: Absolutely. So can you tell our audience who you are and where you're located? And then, mm-hmm. and then also if you have a website or social media that you want people to know.
1: So I am in Brisbane, Australia. Uh, I'm a relationship coach specifically for couples who have neurodiverse children because that's part of my story. I'll be sharing later. Um, you can find me on divinerelating.com and the handle for my Instagram is also divinerelating um, and you can find me on Facebook. It's Rachel Wilson 76 is the profile name. I find it better to connect personally business pages. I feel very impersonal. So if you're going to send me a message, you want to connect to me, with me through Facebook, send me a message and just let me know that you found me on a gift from adversity and then I'll accept your friend request.
0: Wonderful. So, Rich, I truly really appreciate you coming in today and recording uh, episode 65. And let's jump into our first question, which is an adversity. So can you tell our audience what was your adversity?
1: Okay, so I am a mother of four. My two eldest are 24 and nearly 18. And back when we turned 40, both of us turned 40, we decided to go back for one more child and hoping we were hoping it was a boy and we were successful. We had our son only five and a half years ago. And um, he came through with some extra special abilities, <laughs> challenges. Uh, he is now diagnosed as having an intellectual disability. He is ASD level three, which means he's autistic. He is completely nonverbal. He has a receptive and expressive language of a 6- to 12-month-old, so I can't tell him what to do. He doesn't take any direction. He doesn't answer to his name. Um, he also has many health challenges around his gut, so IBS is the, the technical term for what they're putting a lot of it under. Um, and then only a, a couple of years later, we ended up having our daughter who was not on the plan. We were not planning an extra child, so then we ended up with two little ones who are now five and a half and three and a half. And our little girl, um, while she does have, you know, for the first year we thought she was what we call neurotypical, which is another way for saying normal. Um, but after she was a year, year and a half old, she still wasn't speaking. So I thought I'd get her tested, assessed. Um, and as it is now, she is has speech apraxia. She is also autistic. She is ASD level 2, 3. She does have the social, but she has a lot of rigid behaviours. Um, and she has also some dietary restrictions. Both of them have sensory differences, um, and you know all of that in itself is is hard work. Um, but the hardest hardest time for us was what we called Hell Year. It's a nice little nickname for it. So for Hell Year, that was it was the first year of the pandemic. So March two thousand and nineteen to March two thousand. Sorry. March 2000, what year are we in? 2022. It ended last year in March. So it started in March, 2020. Um, our son got an ear infection first time in his entire life, gave him some antibiotics, which was against my my, my internal instincts. You know, when you have instincts about your kids, you just think, oh, it's not for them. Um, anyway, what it did was it stripped his gut. It made his gut problems worse. So even though we healed the ear infection, he was waking up every night screaming in absolute agony multiple times a night. So during that 12 months, my husband and I would drive him around because the car was a sensory environment for him, which helped him to settle the emotional distress. And it helped us to see where the physical distress stopped because it would take that that away. We were Driving him at multiple times during the night. And the rule was when the second coffee gives out, you've got to tap the other person in. So we literally weren't sleeping in the same bed for most of the night. We definitely weren't sleeping at the same time. He was still working full time. And we were up multiple times a night, only getting probably two or three hours sleep each every night for 12 months. Um, at the same time, our little girl, who was absolutely adorable, uh, started to have these massive meltdowns and rages. Now, one and two-year-olds, everybody knows what tantrums are like. I've got two other kids before these two, so I'm used to tantrums. I can cope with the tantrum. Tantrums, I've got. Um, then add to that an autistic meltdown on top of that, which means sensory overload. She couldn't stand us talking. She couldn't, had her eyes closed. Every, she didn't want to be touched. She would scream if we touched her. Um, and, but she would also do self-harm. So both our kids both bang their heads, smack their faces, um, my son, when he's in pain, he was biting his arms and chewing his fingers to the point where they're absolutely calloused now. So it would take me anywhere between 45 minutes and two hours to get my daughter through to the other side of the rage. And the rage would often, so that the autistic meltdown is where the sensory stuff kicked in, and it would only be seconds, a minute before the rage would kick in. So imagine the angriest you've ever been, and then times that by 10, and then be a little girl a baby who has absolutely no control or understanding as to why they are so angry and so upset at the same time. So if I touched her to try and stop her from hurting herself, she would escalate and she would go at me. She would try to gouge my eyes out, rip my earrings out. She would try to bite me. She'd try to scratch me. She'd try to kick me. She'd try to punch me, slap me, all of that. I've actually got scars from the the scratches that I didn't manage to miss on multiple places on my body and my face. Um, so my day was literally, I'd get a couple of hours early in the night and then I would be up driving my son around in the car. I'd hear him wake up and I'd go to him and he would scream and bang his head all the way to the car. He would bang his head on the side of the wall while I was trying to open the door. He would bang his head on the side of the car as I was trying to open the car. This kid had permanent bruises on his forehead. He had bite marks and bruises on his arms. He was, he struggled with capacity. He was constantly getting upset and going into meltdowns purely because he was so tired during the day and we would be driving him during the day. When it got towards the end of the year before we found the solutions for both kids, my husband and I were barely functioning, is an understatement. We both had times where, um, for me, I'll share my experience, there was times there where I i had seriously considered driving my son and I into the water to end his pain, to end my pain, to save the rest of my family. And it was beyond difficult. I can't, There's not even any words to describe the level of burnout and crisis level that we were at. My body was shutting down and struggling with the level of stress, physical stress and exhaustion that I was experiencing. You know how sometimes when you're overtired and a word doesn't come, just the words there, you just can't grab the word to say it. So there's another stage after that. It's you start to lose whole sentences and then you start to lose the ability to even, the words don't even enter into your mind to speak. There's nothing there. And then you lose the ability to even understand what other people are saying to you. And this was happening to me. My body, my brain was struggling so badly that I would stand in the middle of the kitchen in the evening tears streaming down my face because I couldn't speak. I couldn't understand what they were saying. I was exhausted beyond belief. And my husband would recognise it, thankfully, and just send me to bed and then organise our teenager who was only 15 at the time. Okay, can you take the baby and sleep with her so that mum can get some sleep? And our relationship really struggled because now we were both in serious survival mode and just focusing on the, the very next thing we had to do, change that but, do this work. Um, get that person food. Now I need to put a load of washing on. Crap, I need to feed f- food, feed us, do something. So we're in this massive just whatever's next. And when you're in survival mode, you stop having awareness of the other person. You stop thinking, are they okay? Are they doing all right? You don't you stop asking, hey, are you doing all right? I'm just checking in. You stop doing the little things. When you walk past them, putting a hand on their shoulder. You stop thinking of grabbing them a coffee while you're out because you're so focused on what's the very next thing I absolutely have to do because that's all I've got capacity to think about right now. So our relationship that had been solid, rock solid, everybody wanted to have a relationship like ours as we went into hell year. By the time we got to the end of hell year, we were struggling. We weren't to the point of breakup. We weren't to the point of divorce. But we felt like two individual islands. We we had conversations where I was like, I said to my husband, like, where are you? Like, you're not here. There's no connection, there's nothing. And he said, Well, you're not connecting with me either. I'm like, Wow, okay, you're right, I'm not. I haven't. So we had to have many conversations to to find ways to keep our relationship together through the hardest time we have ever had to face as individuals, as a family, and as a couple. Um, eventually we got solutions. We found the reason for my son's pain and then we were able he was able to sleep and we found the reason why my daughter was going completely troppo um, both of them made, needed some some dietary changes and not even big ones although for my daughter it was um, and that's what solved the problem but it was even though now we still have periods of, of sleeplessness with my son because of his health challenges but we keep going you know what not as bad as hell yeah not as bad as hell yeah um, look, if I can survive hell year, I can survive pretty much anything. That was the hardest, the darkest, the most, I don't even have the words to describe the difficulty and the darkness that we felt that year.
0: Well, Rach, thank you so much for sharing your adversity with me and with our audience and for those parents um, who um, struggle with diagnosis Um, of the child first and then I'm a journalist and I got to interview several parents who had no idea what they were struggling misdiagnosed Uh, one of my friend Heather her son they the doctors had no idea what he was struggling with so they diagnosed him with autism, but then mm-hmm. it wasn't. And then it took them several years to discover what the diagnosis was. And it was called Philam MacDonald syndrome. And it was oh, only 200 or 300 people in the world diagnosed with that. Luckily some mm-hmm. doctors at the conference and found out. And right now he's 18. There are two, three thousand cases. It, not really started to expect more. It's a deletion of chromosome twenty-two. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So they they had no idea why he couldn't talk, and yeah. he couldn't move like other child. Mm. So he's non-verbal still. Mm. And I think as great technology has developed and as great medical knowledge and then doctors we have in the world I think it is just like you said earlier that when your child is struggling it is just cuts your like self it's almost like you are having more pain than them
1: so much yeah Yeah. and we had to we had to numb ourselves like because we had to deal with it multiple times a night we just had to go into all right, buddy, into the car. Let's go in the car. You know, we dose him up with painkillers and stomach calm. And we did all the things like all the medical things. Plus we had crystals under his bed. We had a Tesla plate. We had oils. We had ev- like, you just go to every length, anything you can possibly do that might take away his pain you do. We went to doctor after doctor. We waited for pediatrician after pediatrician. We had one pediatrician that said to us, oh, I think it's just his autism." <laughs> like no, this kid is in pain. I'm telling you, he's in pain. And to be not believed was hard, to know that you just had to, yeah, we had to keep fighting. Like I had to fight to get him referred to be checked out by a neurologist to confirm there wasn't anything in his head because he doesn't show pain like we do. He doesn't go, head hurts. He bangs his head. He beats, his up, he beats up his body. He bites his arms for pain anywhere in his body. So we couldn't, we didn't know if it was in his tummy. We guessed it was, but I didn't know if it was his tummy or his head. So I had to push to get to the doctors, to the specialists. And it always takes time. And, I, you know, you go into the hospital with another, you know, he has a particularly bad episode, but by the time the doctors see him in the hospital, they go, oh, well, he's not in pain right now and it's not appendicitis. So we can't admit him, you know, wait till you see your pediatrician in two, three, four months' time. So it's just this constant waiting for the next person, next appointment, you know, and just trying to get through each day until the next appointment. And, and there's a lot of parents out there that go through the same thing of not being listened to. You know, we, we know some things about our kids that the medical system just doesn't know. And while we may not be able to put it into medical jargon in a way that they can understand, we know what's 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 happening, what's not happening. And um, you know, it can be quite frustrating, you know, on top of the exhaustion, on top of the grief, on top of everything else, on top of of, you know, still trying to function in everyday life. You've still got to go do the groceries, you've still got to clean the house, you've still got to take the kids to their therapy appointments. I mean all of that still has to keep going. So, you know, and there's so many couples with special needs, neurodiverse, or even terminally ill children that experience this every day. Um, and there's just honestly not enough support for the families. There's not enough support for the families.
0: I have a question rich so when you're going through this how how do you describe to our audience your friends and then family like support um towards you or towards your children did you experience any prejudice or discrimination or maybe isolation they supported of you
1: i think i mean i think there was naturally isolation because as we got further and further into exhaustion, we just didn't have the capacity to be socialising. We didn't. And because our son was, you know, we knew what was going to happen every day. We knew that come seven, eight o'clock when he falls asleep, within an hour, he's going to be up and going to need to be driving. So, you know, having any kind of social life was really difficult because we'd be driving him during the day. We literally were spending 80% of the twenty 24-hour hour day in the car um, towards the end, particularly. So... It made it hard. And because we were just getting into that survival mode of dealing with what was in front of us, like I wasn't even reaching out to my friends to say, hey, I'm struggling. It was just, what's the next thing? What's the next thing? So when my friends would reach out to me and say, how are you doing? I'd be honest and tell them what was going on and that I was struggling. But I wasn't necessarily proactively reaching out um, to get that help. So our life changed. Like we can kind of see life before our littles and life after our littles, but also you know, then we compare everything to hell you which, you know, now is so much better. And it's only going to get better from here. And that's my belief. Um But getting through it was, was difficult, really difficult.
0: I can't thank you enough for sharing your experience uh, with me and then with the audience, because sometimes when you are in the middle of adversity, like you don't even know you are in it. And then You kind of get out and you realize that, oh wow, I was, you know, going through very hard shit. But when you are in the very inside of Mm -hmm. the storm, you just have to survive and then get some air and then just, you just don't know how to survive because you've never experienced that.
1: Yeah, it's kind of, you kind of white knuckle your way through. (laughs)
0: It's like,
1: just, you know you work out what you can do and you just do that whether it's right or wrong it doesn't matter it's just you know, what do we need to do you just it's almost like you stop thinking about a lot of things but you also stop worrying about a lot of things too because you don't have the capacity to think that far ahead you've just got to focus on what you've got to do in this minute which is the survival you know it's kind of the, the gift of survival in that respect um but yeah you just you just survive and like people will say to me i don't know how you did it and the answer is i just did i had no choice There was the." there was no choice in the middle of that to go, well, would you like to get out of hell here and just, you know, everything be fine or would you like to stay in it? Like there was no choice. Um, We just, as humans, we, we, when adversity hits, we just deal with it the best we can in the moment. And then when we get to the other side, then we can see, you know, that it was as bad as it was. That we can take the learnings. We can see the bigger picture. We can, um, you know, see the gifts and everything that was in it too. But in the, in the middle of it, Literally, we just, we white knuckle our way through. We just do what we've got to do.
0: And it was very interesting that when you said that you lost words and you lost communication Mm -hmm. and then that had happened to me, uh, to share it with you, when I was 13 years old, I remember I could not speak for one week. I was Mm a mute completely. Like, Mm -hmm. I I couldn't hear people saying something to me. Mm -hmm. And the kids were bullying. Like, I remember they're getting in circle and then, like, bullying me that I'm deaf. Mm -hmm. But it was right after very severe sexual abuse from my father. And I completely lost ability to speak and ability to respond. Yeah. And I think when you are thrown into this exhaustion and shock, and that overwhelm, unless otherwise you are extreme psychologist or something that can completely understand what's going on in your head, it just I can relate to that part of mm. like mute, like that you just can't talk, you just doesn't care communicate. Enough yeah and Mm. i'm sorry that you had to go through that and then um it is just unimaginable what you went through as a single mom of two
1: and no i've got a husband we've got a husband thank god he was in it with me um I think one of the, the scariest parts for me also in that was, you know, as I was talking about the the way that the brain shuts down, I was also having what they call dissociative episodes. So I'd be driving and in my mind I would see myself grab the steering wheel and, and t- turn it into oncoming traffic or off a bridge or into a tree. But I had no desire to do it. I mean, there were definitely thoughts at a later stage of, of doing that. But at the time it came became quite scary because I was – it felt like any second now my hand could actually follow through and my, what my brain was showing me. And I didn't feel like there was anything I could do about that. Um, so it's as as the the body struggles under the load of the exhaustion, there's so many things that start to shut down um, and diminish and change. And uh, I think there needs to be a lot more education about that, a lot more support for families and couples who are ex- experiencing that extreme exhaustion and pressure, um, I think it's quite damaging actually in many ways but, you know, everything has to catch up.
0: You know, when you become a parent, you'll never be parent and you're not prepared for any of raising a child. There's no education. School will never teach you. Like nobody would prepare you for the circumstance in any you- no one would warn you that your kids will be sick or have these difficulties. And, you know, there is no course that you can take before you become a mom and or dad. And I think it's just really hard to figure it out. And then especially, you know, when you are having challenges after challenges and like you said that, you know, it is just um, unimaginable, like sometimes out of control, that it's like mm. you are like way too overwhelmed. Yeah. That sometimes you just don't know what you're doing. Like exactly. all the people almost, that you just have to do what you have to do. Yeah. But then your mind and emotion is completely disconnected.
1: Mm. Very. I was very disconnected from myself, from my husband, from my children. I was just, you know, very much a zombie, a robot, just doing what needed to be done. Um, and if I could sneak a bit of a nap or lay down, you know, it, it might be 20 minutes that I can get that space, but it was just enough to keep going for the next few hours until I could crawl into bed. You know, it was just, that's how the day was running. It was just, you know, how long until I can lay down and do whatever I've got to do, you know, between now and then at the least amount possible, like the amount of stuff that just got left behind, forgotten pushed to the side. It was just, what do I absolutely have to do? And only the an emergency must-dos was the only thing that got done. So even self-care, like self-care went out the window. Um, because I was waking up in the middle of the night and just literally putting my clothes on and then doing my turn to drive, I'd have my two coffees. So then I'd be too wired to go back home and go to sleep if my son was asleep in the car. So I'd go and drive to a beach and just stay there for the sunrise. And then I'd come home and then my daughter would be awake and then I'd into my day and take care of the two kids. And then my husband would roll out of bed because of COVID. We were, he was working from home, which meant that he wasn't doing the one hour, 45 minute commute in one direction and be away from the house for 12 hours. He could just sleep until 7.25, roll out of bed and log on at 7.30, do his full day and then back into the family mix and helping me with the kids at the end of the day. Um, yeah, you just, it, it, the shutdown, the you just, everything else stops. We didn't even care about COVID in that first year, because that was not our most pressing problem to worry about.
0: And I think a lot of challenges are not just the COVID, but just facing these unknowns and misdiagnosis. And I feel like the doctors Oh, wonderful but it's sometimes one-sided and then I had a cases that one doctor said something but I my gut feeling was saying mm-hmm. I don't think so so I went to see another doctor and then you know got the right diagnosis as well so like what you said you know switching to a different doctors and like you know not knowing what's going on yeah. and then well Couple, I I think a month ago or so, um, my kid uh, got some rash and then um, I took um, him to urgent care. But one of the urgent care couldn't figure out what it was Hmm. and they just thought he drank some pool water during the camp. But I didn't think so. Mm -hmm. And so next day, so there was no diagnosis no treatment so i i took me to a completely different urgent care and now he got a right diagnosis which was not like life threatening but it was called pediatric rosia and then um it kind of goes away on its own bike. By- so anyways um you're right about going with your in- you know instinct
1: yeah yeah it there were a couple, there's been a couple of times, particularly with Jacks, because he does have a lot of health challenges. Um, even recently, we had to go into hospital because he was, I thought he was just a bit dehydrated and just needed some, some fluids. Turns out he had pneumonia. <laughs> he couldn't tell me. <laughs> um, but it was, thankfully, the doctors at that particular hospital have been really, really good. So now I've found a place where I can go where they're really good with him and his challenges. Um, and they listened to me. They were the first ones out of all the hospitals that we went to that actually listened to me. We turned up on their doorstep and we were living in New South Wales, which is a different state to here. And uh, But we were moving up here. We in the process of moving, but we hadn't landed here yet. So we drove five and a half hours to get to the hospital here because things were just not getting any better. And I did not want to start in a new house with the same Groundhog Day. So we landed at the hospital and they could have turned us away like many other hospitals before. But we got in and the first nurse started listening to what I said had been going on. And she's like, okay, hold on a second. She went and got the doctor. The doctor came in and said, right, now tell me everything, everything about his medical history from the time that he was born and even tell me about the pregnancy. So she listened to everything. My mother was with me. My husband was still down with the other kids because he was working from home. And we just cried. It was the first doctor, the first person that actually said, I want to hear what's actually going on. Tell me everything so that we can work out. And she said, look, he's not in acute, it's not appendicitis, so it's not an emergency. But because we had experienced so long with this problem and him being in so much pain and we didn't know why, she said, we need to get you in. We need to get a whole team of specialists onto him. We need to find out what is going on and why he's in so much pain all the time. And what happened was it turned out that um, FODMAP foods, something that naturally occurs in foods. Um, so when we'd given him the antibiotics that had changed his gut biome, which then made him sensitive to FODMAP foods, which he wasn't sensitive to before. And then the FODMAP foods continued to inflame his entire digestive system. Every time he ate them, even though he was already gluten-free, dairy-free, low carb, no fruit, no chemicals. I mean, this kid had the cleanest diet of any child ever. Um, but even with all of that, He had a couple of vegetables that were in his meatballs that were high fodmap. Um, The almond meal that I was making his muffins out of that he had, you know, big chunks of because that was his his only snack was high fodmap. So the the foods had just been kept had just kept it going, and those foods were literally fermenting in his digestive system. So think about the worst wind pain you have ever felt. And this kid has a higher than usual pain threshold. So if he's screaming in agony, it's bad. It's so bad. And that was multiple times a night and even started sometimes during the day. That's what happened to him. So thankfully, we found a hospital. We found a place. We found the doctors that now understand him, know him, and listen to us. And that makes such a big difference to our stress and exhaustion. Now we've got a place where can go when you thought well
0: well thank you so much for sharing i really appreciate you being brave and then being um, able to express and um so can we switch to a second question which is the tools that you use to overcome this adversity and challenges so this of the podcast is one of my favorite because a lot of times people will say when you have a problem, just go see a therapist and stuff. But this, that's not the only one. And then all of my mm-hmm. guests who came so far had been sharing very unique ways to tackle the adversities. And I think that is that has been really, really healing. And I've used some of the techniques my guests shared Um, on this podcast. So, Rach, can you please tell our audience what are the best tools that you use to overcome these adversities that you faced? I mean,
1: one of the the reason we're in the adversity for the first point was because our son was not sleeping. But the problem that we faced was dealing with the burnout and how do we keep going through that period of time? How do we keep our relationship going through that period of time? And it was the little things. So, as you can imagine, there was absolutely no sex going on, no date nights, certainly no, no, nothing big that would keep our relationship feeling connected. Um, So we had to rely on the little things. The little things became even just moments of appreciation, just saying to my saying to my husband, "Look, I thank you so much for doing whatever it was. It could be something tiny. It didn't matter." He just needed to hear that he was appreciated, that what he was doing wasn't going unnoticed. Which you know, when we're in survival mode, everything's unnoticed. It's just okay, it's done. Not even oh wow, he made the bed, that's awesome. You just there's no thought process around that. But trying to find things and and be conscious of the little things that each each other was doing, and sometimes it was just I'm so glad that you're in this with me. You know, just even that alone is enough to feel like I'm not alone. they they're here. You know, we're both struggling in this together. And it'd be enough to put a little bit of fuel in the tank to keep going. But in order to get through the the exhaustion, the little things that I did was I would, like when my son and I were driving, I would stop at the beach. I would sit there and watch the sunrise. I would listen to music. I would, or my podcast that I wanted to listen to. That for me was how I got some balance because I was well and truly caffeinated at that point. Um, So I found ways to bring in a little bit of sunshine, a little bit of peace a little bit of an opportunity for me to just stop and breathe because that became the, the one thing I could do. I couldn't control my son's pain. I couldn't get him the answers I needed. I couldn't get him to sleep as much as I wanted him to. There was so much that was out of my control, but the one thing I could control was that I could take a deep breath. I could make myself a cup of tea. I could go sit out the back in the sun while the kids were in a, a good space, even just taking five minutes for myself. My husband and I would... would um, be at least in communication, and when one of us was like really on the edge of tipping over into really not coping, like breakdown level, um, we would try and find ways to get that person what we called out of the mix, which means out of the family, out of the house, out of the whole thing. So we started to do, to look at the whole thing as a marathon rather than something that was going to end any time now, which I think was, you know, as you do, you think you know, this is surely going to end in... Yeah, within a week we'll get it all sorted or and maybe in the next few days he will start to sleep and months and months go by. So we started to look at it as a marathon and thought, okay, well, what do we need to do in order to survive? If this could, this could continue for the years, we don't know. So we started to organise every second Friday night. I would go and stay at my friend's place and get one night of girl time. We wouldn't be up very late because I'd be so tired. But, you know, she'd make me dinner. I would sleep in the spare room, which meant that I didn't have to even be on high alert because that's what happens when you are listening for your child. You are on high alert all the time. So I got to just let my nervous system settle down, even if it was only for you know not quite 24 hours, but we would try to make it 24 hours um, of just getting that rest time, knowing full well that the second that we walked back into the house, my partner would be completely fried my daughter would be completely fried. So now I would need to bring the lion's share of the, the support into the house so that those two could get a little bit of a break because they would have been on on all night. Um, and that's how we had to roll. We were constantly on the edge of falling over into breakdown because it was so bad. But in order to get through, we had to think about it. We had to change our thinking and go, okay, if this is a marathon, if this is something that's going to go on forever, how can we get that respite for ourselves how can we get the supports that we need? It meant that I had to ask for help. And now anyone who's a, a strong, independent woman whose entrepreneurs tend to be go-getters and we, we, we're we really good at doing what we need to do, not as great at asking for help, particularly when we feel like we're you know, falling apart because we're not coping. So I had to, on occasion, reach out to to organisations for help. I had to, to fight for extra funding to get a support person to help us. Um, I had to reach out to my mum and say, I'm I'm not coping. And she said, I'd, OK, I'll come up because she wasn't. We had no family in the local area. Um, you know, When people offered to help, I had to learn how to say, yes, please. That would be great. And then take the action to organise it, not just that it be lip service. Um, it meant that i had to learn how to get out of my own way i had to learn how to actually receive i had to learn to ask for what i needed um, and these were all things that became part of my tool belt to get through that time because it you know if you think about it if you're, you know, if you believe in god or the universe it doesn't matter but they it, the, the term is you'll never be given any more than you can handle but i think the extra part of that is We're in a community, we are part of a community, we're part of family groups, we're not meant to do this on our own. Um, And sometimes, when the pressure is on, that's when we crack and we let go of trying to control it and take care of it all on our own. And then we tap into the community. So, the community became a very big way of me being able to get through my community, my friends, my network. Um, As a coach, I've got. Huge amounts of coaches in my network um, and healers and all sorts of stuff. So when I I started, I didn't didn't get on social media much. um, But occasionally through that, I did share, you know, very honestly about what was going on. And in doing so, that activated my network. I had lots of personal messages. People would check in on me and just say, how are you going? How about we jump on a call? You can just download to me, vent, you know. Um, And that became a way of me just releasing the pressure and not having to give that to my husband who was also struggling. Um, So my friends became my counsellors, my coaches, my healers. Um, And then once we got our son to sleep, I made a conscious effort to then do even more healing work because I had to heal my body from burnout. And not just burnout, we had gone into a survival pattern. We had to learn how to rebuild our relationship. And I didn't have to learn how to do that. I knew how to do that, but I had to, to to pull on my own tools as a relationship coach and go, okay, well, we need to reconnect. We need to come back together. What do we have to do to do that? And then I would I would instigate the conversations and I'd say, let's do this. Let's organize that. We here we are. You know, he's five and a half, and she's three and a half, and we're eighteen months out of hell year. And you know, we we are at the fringes of thriving, is the way that I would put it. And the reality is because our son continues to have challenges and our daughter continues to have challenges and the load of their therapies and everything is quite high, um, we, won't be, we won't have the same time availability that we had before them for quite some time. Um, and, you know, big date nights and weekends away, not going to happen for a while yet. So we have to keep focusing on the little things that we can do and we'll sneak away for, even if we get out of the house for a coffee together. That's huge. If we can lock our bedroom door and just have an afternoon together, that's huge. Um, so it's you know the tools are you know doing our own healing work, coming back together, asking for conversations, um, step by step by step, and not expecting the other person to have it all together uh, or to be perfect either, because we're remembering that we're both under a huge load of of exhaustion. Still, a lot of the time. So yeah, my community. My skills as a coach um, was what saved us and got us through and then getting us out of survival because often a lot of couples, they go through a survival incident, whether it's for a year or two years or however long, but they get into a survival pattern and they never recover from the pattern. Their relationship never recovers from the pattern. Um, and that's you know, that's been integral in us getting to a place of feeling like we're finally starting to thrive again.
0: So did you become a relationship coach after this adversity or before?
1: I was a relationship coach many years ago. So between two thousand and eight to two thousand and fourteen, I was relationship coaching. Um, and then I, you know, I, I'm I'm a i am ai like doing different things. So I then I started doing coaching with uh, ladypreneurs with a a good friend of mine. We started a business together. She was a psychic intuitive. So she was teaching intuition. I was doing mindset transformation. And between the two of us, we were talking about business and brainstorming and building businesses and supporting female entrepreneurs. Um, We were doing that up until I went on maternity leave with my, my littlest girl. And then after the plan was after maternity leave with her, I was going to come back. But that's when he started to have more problems. So then, it, you know, he had another three month stint where he wasn't sleeping, and then we came out of that. And then I was recovering from burnout, and then we went into hell year. So it's basically been over three years that I haven't been able to work. And it was the end of last year, the end of last year, um, beginning of this year, where I started to get more capacity. And and I I'm one of those people that look, I love being a mum, but that's not every part of who I am. I have a a need or a desire inside of me to do more. Um, do something else in the world as well. So I sort of sat with God and the universe and went, right, what do I do? What's what's next? Like I, I could do anything. There's so much. Um, and coming back to relationships felt like the path. And then it took a little while to realise that my my greatest gift in all of this was having that personal experience of what it's like to go through hell with special needs children. Um, knowing how hard it is on the individual as well as the relationship and, you know, how we got through. So it made sense for me to then step back into relationship coaching and focus on the same couples that struggle with what we do, but perhaps don't have the strength of relationship going into that that we did because we've been together nearly 22 years. Um, Our relationship was extremely strong before um, we had the two littles and went into hell year. And that got us through. So if I can make a difference to, Couples out there, couples who have got kids like ours, um, they are the ones that really need the, the stable, happy homes the most um, and their kids who desperately need a stable and happy home because of their extra challenges and extra sensitivities. And sadly, couples like us, the divorce and breakup rate is so much higher because of the pressure and the stress causes massive cracks and gaps in relationships that they just cannot survive. So it's my personal mission and my my passion and purpose is to, to make a difference to that statistic. So giving those couples an opportunity to have a happy relationship and a happy family.
0: So have you had a client with uh, children with disability that you helped as a relationship coach?
1: Yes. Yes, I have. Um, and even parents I've worked with. Parents, because they have similar problems. They may not be as extreme as what it is with kids with special needs, um, but definitely, you know, couples, once they have children, it changes the dynamic of the relationship, it changes the status quo, and the time, the energy that the relationship was getting has changed. Um, If they've got any emotional baggage, guaranteed having a child is going to bring it to the surface. So, yes, I have absolutely worked with multiple parents. And part of my philosophy is, you know, we come into parenting, we come into relationships and we wing it. We are using our default programming and our experience as a way of deciding how we're going to parent, but also how we're going to do relationships. Most people don't ever go and do any kind of training, learning about how to communicate effectively in relationships. They don't learn how how do we build a relationship that feels like we're on the same team? How do we get on the same page? How do we work as a team in the household? How do we divvy up the job so it feels fair? How do we decide, get on the same page in parenting with the kids? How do we decide what we're going to do discipline-wise? You know, all of these things, we tend to fall into what we default grew up with um, or experienced growing up or the role models that we're facing. And I do not know many people. In fact, I, I've, I can name two people that grew up with parents that stayed together the entire time they grew up, and they're still together now, um, that had a happy, healthy relationship where they communicated, they showed love. Um, everyone else I've ever met has not got a stellar role models in their parents or that they grew up with as a way of saying, well, yeah, I can do relationships well. Most people have got stuff because of broken relationships or their parents not being very good at communicating abuse and everything that happens in those realms. Um, And unfortunately, if if that stuff's not addressed, if the, the baggage isn't healed and the skills in communicating and relating, and how do we move through this together in a mature way, so developing emotional maturity, if that doesn't happen, we then create another generation of children that are growing up with the same baggage, the same unhealthy patterns of behaviour, the same unhealthy viewpoints of relationships, the same baggage, um, but then create another generation of children that also then struggle in relationships. So, you know, to me, that's it's so important that we understand that it takes skills as well as emotional maturity to create fulfilling, healthy, thriving relationships that are the role models for our children.
0: It is very important to hear emotional maturity. And a lot of times the relationship, regardless of having um children's illnesses and challenges the relationship itself like the two people come together live together get very intensely close and then emotional immaturity and then if, it, if it's like somebody who is more mature than the other and then yeah. somehow it becomes unbalanced and then it's very very difficult to balance the level of maturity and then emotional packages and to communicate and then neutralize
1: i think most people yeah the, the thing is we're not taught and i learned it because i decided i really wanted to understand it in 2014 because i've been married twice this is my second husband my first husband who is the father of my eldest daughter um yeah our relationship failed I learned a lot about what not to do in that relationship, so there was a lot of gifts in that. But coming into this relationship, I was adamant I was not going to do the same. I was not going to do the same mistakes. I was not going to have the same Groundhog Day fights that I had with my first husband. So I actively went searching for. I read books. Um, I wanted to know how do I succeed in relationships because I would come out from a, my parents divorced. There was clearly things I didn't know, patterns that I then repeated in the relationship with my first husband. I'm like, I'm not doing this again. So I actively went and learned skills. I learned what does a healthy relationship look like? And in that process, I realized that some of what happened in the first marriage was, oh, oh, I did that. Oh, okay, that's what I contributed. Hmm, okay, I'm not going to do that again. So then I changed the way that I approached this relationship and every misunderstanding we ever had, I would always make a point to go, right, what do we need to do differently so that we don't go through this again? And whatever we, it might've been, well, next time I need you to tell me this or t- you know, talk to me about that or um, whatever the the thing is that we decided would make the difference, that would change it if it happened again. We just committed to doing that. That's all we did. And then those misunderstandings got fewer and fewer, but far between. We just didn't happen anymore because we were on the same page. We'd gone through all of that. Um, and we, we managed to make that work. Uh, but what I see a lot of is, you know, when you've got your own, everybody's got baggage. I see a lot of relationships where you've got someone who's afraid of being rejected gets with someone who is emotionally unavailable. So they constantly feel rejected. It's like this puzzle piece. We're like, we're put together with someone who will trigger our stuff But most people, because it's not educated, don't realize that when your, when your partner does something that triggers your emotional stuff, all it is 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 giving you a, an insight to go, oh, there's my stuff. <laughs> oh, what's that about? I need to go and work on that so I'm not so hypersensitive to the words or actions and because I'm reading their words and actions based on my sensitivity and my filters. And when you understand that, then you can take personal responsibility for that. You can do something about that. But sometimes we don't know what stuff we have until someone, what I call, pokes the bear triggers your stuff. So the problem is with people who have got no, a lower level of maturity and no understanding of that and no skills to communicate through that, one of them pokes the bear, the other one gets triggered. So then they poke back and then they poke back and adjust. That's when you get these massive blow-ups, huge amounts of anger, frustration and grief, resentment, guilt, all of that grows every time an argument happens because they don't understand. Most people don't that this is person's stuff is being triggered, their person's stuff is being triggered. Great. Now that we know that, how can we work together to help each other heal that so that these things become a bonding experience instead of something that slowly damages and destroys us and our relationship every time?
0: Well, thank you so much for sharing that, Rich. Right. So last question I have is a gift. You mentioned a little bit. But if you can tell our audience, what's maybe the biggest gift that came from this adversity?
1: I think the biggest, I mean, there's been many gifts, but one of the biggest gifts is I've got so much more patience and compassion and understanding because of the differences in my children. I never knew about the word neurodiverse before my son. I didn't know what autism really looked like. I didn't know what the all the gamut of the spectrum could look like for each of these children. I didn't know about the gifts that they have. I didn't know about the general like the struggles that they have living in our neurotypical world because it's designed for us not them. So now when my child is having a meltdown and what used to be I I am guilty As a parent of 20 years ago, seeing someone in in the mall and their child chucking a massive tantrum, thinking, oh, they just need to tell that child to sit up or, you know, just discipline. Um, I don't see it that way anymore. Now I know that sometimes when you see a child that is absolutely chucking the biggest wobbly in the the supermarket and their their mum or dad can't control them, um, they're actually having a sensory overload meltdown. They just cannot cope with it. And all I want to do in that time is I want to go up to the parent and say, Can I help you? Like, is there anything I can do? Um, Because we need support. In those moments, it can feel so alone. And I've had people not even come near me when I've got my child losing it and I'm standing in the car park with tears streaming down my face and not one person comes near me. Um, I've got so much more compassion, so much more patience with my own kids, and a lot bigger reservoir of knowledge that gives me an ability to understand and empathize with so many more people and be accepting of their differences um, neurodiverse and otherwise
0: thank you so much for sharing that and it breaks my heart to hear that you are standing and streaming your tears and then nobody came to help and in many situations like that i think a lot of times people may want to help but they just don't know what to do
1: and it's absolutely, true. It's absolutely we,
0: true like you know if i see somebody's like m- you know completely melting down and then kids are going um kind of out of control like i want to offer a help but at the same time i don't know how much of the help i would be and also i don't know if that would offend that person
1: i think the I think in those situations, you're better off to just offer it because they can always reject it. And that's their their choice. If you just say, hey, is there anything I can do to help you right now? And if they say no, okay, that's fine. If they say, yes, great. How can I help you? What is it I can do for you? And I think if we all approach it that way, instead of worrying about offending other people, um, because, you know, you. You never know. They might be just like me. And I I kind of really wanted someone in that moment to just say, hey, even to stand there with me while she had the complete meltdown and just, you know, just have someone there with me so I didn't feel so alone. It would have made a big difference. So I think if we can, and if anyone who's watching this, if you see a parent who's looks like they're struggling with their child, even trying to, you know, fight them to to get them in the pram or whatever, just ask them if they need some help. And allow them to decide if they need it or not.
0: And then, when you approached that to some other parents, that if, when you saw, like, what was their response?
1: More often than not, yeah. Could you just take this? Like, could you just help me? You know, take push the pram and I'll pick him up. Um, I did have. I was out the side outside of a hospital one day, and I had my son, and he was in the the. I had him in the wheelchair, um, but he went into a meltdown. So then he kicked himself out of the wheelchair, and he was half under it but we were being called to go in and I, I couldn't get him into the wheelchair because he was throwing himself around so hard. Um, and there were people in the car park that said, can we help? I'm like, yeah, can you take the wheelchair? I will just, I will grab him, but can you help me get into the, the building? And I had three people that all jumped in and helped me get into the building and into see the doctor. So, you know, it just, it, it just, knowing you're not alone, it makes such a big difference.
0: That is such a touching moment that three random people came to help you. but Like you said, maybe one of the gifts is that as independent as you are and as strong as you think you are, some of the moments that we as a society and a human being as a whole, I think we need to learn to say, I need help. Yeah, and absolutely. Meeting that you need help and learning those tools that you have many tools that you learned and sharing it with people that is very important and then part of the conversation that I wanted to you know dedicate to this world sharing adversity and tools and a gift is those talks are not often um, common and normal that there are too much uh, stigma and prejudice and discrimination. And, you know, I really appreciate you. I think a lot of parents who are with kids with disability and then challenges, they even feel ashamed to talk about it. And then, especially in Japan, we try to hide those kids who Mm -hmm. have disability. So, I really can't thank you enough for coming to university from Australia today. And yeah, I'm in America and then I'm from Japan. And then, you know, this conversation had been very rich to me, my life. And then some of the audience, just to let you know, I had a guest from New Zealand, actually. He um, got injured himself. Um, by rugby accident and then being on wheelchair for 27 years. And then after mm-hmm. the episode came out, someone on wheelchair bond um from Oklahoma America listened to the episode and then messaged me via email and then said, can I be on your show? So you never know who um is listening to this episode and then you never know who you're gonna be touching through this conversation and learn something from this. So, Rach, thank you very much again for coming to the podcast today and um, thank you to our audience as well.
1: Yeah, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here and and if I can make it a bit better for someone out there, then, you know, I, I've ticked the box on my purpose today then too.
0: Great. Well, have a wonderful day and um, we'll be in touch and. Thank you everyone again and I will see you next time.